Well, it's our first pod of the new year. Happy New Year, everyone. It's that time of year again. JP Morgan is right around the corner. And that means we're going to see lots of management moves this week, as well as a good deal of financings. We've already got a bunch under embargo and perhaps a major bit of M&A. Two years ago, Lily bought Loxo, a deal that's still really bearing fruit, only to be upstaged by Bristol Myers buying Celgene in a $74 billion deal. Last year was sleepy by comparison, but Lily still kicked things off with a billion dollar deal, taking out Dermira. But this year, JP Morgan and its sister conference, Biotech Showcase, have gone virtual, so all bets are off. We do know that you won't be charged $20 for a coffee for your meeting in a bathroom, and you won't be caught in San Francisco's annual rainstorm, which only happens during JP Morgan. Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburne, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Osden, Washington Editor. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. You've been talking with buy-siders and bankers about what to expect in 2021. What are you hearing? Well, Jeff, it's been a lot of consensus, actually, which I think has a lot of people unnerved. Obviously, 2020 was a record year by almost any metric, as you put it, in terms of financings or sort of fund performance. And I think what people feel nervous about is that they expect a lot of the same thing heading into the new year. The markets, sort of the macro environment is situated pretty well with low interest rates expected to continue. There are some expectations really that a lot of the red flags that you'd be looking for that could really set the market on a downturn just don't really seem to be there. And one of those being the political environments. A lot of the investors I'm talking to sort of have expectations that the Biden administration is going to be too busy dealing with the pandemic and with the economic recovery to really able to spend much time or attention sort of focused on any of the pharmaceutical issues like drug pricing that we know are still a real concern, but are maybe expected to be more issues around 2022. All of this sort of benign sort of sentiment uh, has actually a lot of these investors worried that there's something that could be blindsiding them. Excellent. And then any picks you're hearing in terms of, I mean, I think a year or two ago, correct me if I'm wrong, Simone, we declared it the year of the kidney. And then we had CNS is back. Anything you're hearing to that effect, Stephen? I think there's just a lot of interest on new modalities heading into the year. I've had a couple of people name gene therapy and some of the issues that we've seen, but getting past some of those and those becoming a year where we could really see some turning points for those. Obviously with CNS, there's the decision on aducanumab as well. A lot of this is what people are spending their attention on, at least early in the year. I'm not so sure. People will say that the Biden administration can't do two things at once or three things at once or four things at once. So it's not going to be doing anything about drug pricing until 2022 or 2023 or whatever. I don't believe that that's necessarily the case. I don't think you can take drug pricing policies off the table. The Trump administration tried to pull administrative levers to control drug prices and it was incompetent. It didn't manage to do it. Biden's team could be more competent. There's a great deal of interest in Medicare drug prices, and there are a lot of things that they can do using the powers of CMS, it's called the CMMI at CMS, to impose drug um, price controls. I think that that's a a likelihood that they're going to try to do that. I think a lot also is going to depend on the composition of the Senate. If the Democrats get control of the Senate, 
it's going to be easier to get legislation through that, again, could have impacts on drug prices. And I think the pharma industry in particular, pharma CEOs, are debating and they're going to debate whether they're better off trying to resist drug price controls and um, efforts to, to control drug prices, or if that's a losing battle, if they should try to strike some kind of a grand bargain, which is something that some people in the farm industry have been calling for for years. They may see the Biden administration and a Democratic controlled Senate as the opportunity to get that kind of a bargain into place. And, and let's be clear, because Biocentury has commented on this, the industry is really at a high point in terms of its relationship with the public for, I don't know what, decades, certainly years. And it can lose that very fast overnight if it reverts to some of its other practices on what it's mostly been thought of until 2020, which is its policies on drug pricing. A grand bargain or finding a way to solve what is universally accepted as a big problem, which is drug pricing, is in everybody's interest. That's pretty interesting. I'm very curious to see how all that shakes out. Stephen, you're, you're sitting over there in the UK, no doubt enjoying great, sunny, warm weather. We've got a Brexit deal. We have new leadership at EMA. What does the Brexit deal mean for industry? For the first time in four years, hopefully, it means that there is some degree of certainty, although I think still having been so fresh off the deal, I think people are still digesting exactly what it's going to mean from the sort of the practical standpoint. At least we know that there is a deal in place so that it provides a bit more certainty around moving products between Europe and the UK. And then on the other side, I mean, having a bit more certainty around the regulatory processes that companies have to navigate. We've already seen a fair bit coming out of MHRA around some of the policies they'd like to do and some of the innovation they're looking at to do. Hopefully, there will still be plenty of cooperation between the two parties going forward. I think there's opportunity on both sides as well. And of course, MHRA being the UK regulatory body. Simone, do you have any quick takes on innovative policies that you're seeing out of your homeland? <laughs> I think it is going to be interesting to see if MHRA can establish itself, as Stephen has written about, as an agency of choice. If you think about Japan's got PMDA, it's going to be important for the UK. We have been watching the rise of the UK biopharma ecosystem. In fact, we wrote our first story about this three months before the surprising Brexit vote in 2016, and then a month later wrote another story about that. So that ecosystem there has really gone gangbusters. I actually think that we identified what they call the golden triangle, London, Oxford, Cambridge, not a term I'm particularly enthusiastic about, but it, we, we identified that as about the third biggest hotspot in the world after San Francisco and Boston for new company formation. There's really a lot of interest. I think we can all agree that last year, the UK put itself on the map with a recovery trial, with the Oxford vaccine. And so now the question is, can the regulators also continue that momentum there and create an agency of choice with their ability to do some things faster than the EU, the EMA? 
I, I don't want to sugarcoat this. There's still a lot of people in science who are not happy about Brexit. A lot of people who feel that if they get something good out of this, it's really more salvaging than what they would have wanted. I do believe that, and Stephen, you might elaborate on this, Horizon 2020 or the next version of whatever that's called, the UK scientists are still going to be able to work with their European colleagues in a way they have been, and that's very important. That's right. Yep. The, the UK still has associate country access to, to Horizon Europe, which is the name for the program that runs to 2027 and has a 30% increase on the budget of Horizon 2020. There's still a lot of opportunity there. I think you're right for UK scientists to work, which I think is important to maintain sort of collaboration, whether it's to the same extent that we've seen in years past. I think that, that's what remains to be seen. All right. From science to deal making and cancer. Simone, you and a few of our colleagues, including senior editor Lauren Martz, recently completed an analysis of the 138 partnering deals and 35 M&A events in oncology between January 2017 and last September. What were the key takeaways from your analysis? Right. So we did look at those deals. What we also did is segregate out the deals that involved a pharma company. We've got a couple of slide decks in our content stream that really have the data on this, because what we wanted to do is not only look at how the deals are segregating, but how farmers are playing in this space. I'll give you just a few of the take-home messages. One of them is there's a huge amount of activity in really early, so discovery and preclinical, about the same amount activity as there is in the late stage, or maybe even more, of drug development opportunities. And across the board, farmers are paying top of the range. The highest valuation deals involve farmers, and the top of the range, like discovery deals, can be commanding as much money as phase three deals for phase three assets or even approved assets. I think a couple other really big points that we see, which is when we look at everybody's always interested in this and the breakdown of immuno-oncology versus targeted therapies, for all the noise that we hear about immuno-oncology, targeted therapies still command almost half of the deals. There's still a very big area for deal making. We do see slightly divergent trends. So targeted therapies tend to command large valuations for late stage deals. The immuno-oncology deals often skew earlier. Two more points that I want to make. Within immuno-oncology, if you look at the technologies involved, really the lion's share is going to three specific technologies, I'm going to call them. One is T-cell engagers, one is cell therapies, and the other is checkpoints. And we see that farmers want to be in one of those three, not often in more than one of those three, but they are making their picks there. The other thing we see is bispecifics are huge. They have surpassed standard antibodies, MABs, in deals, and surpassed cell therapy in oncology deals. We see non-pharma companies, smaller companies, very big players in deals in that space. I think this is a quick overview of where oncology deal making is going. Take home messages, yes, IO is huge, but don't count out targeted therapies. There's still a lot of space there. I'd like to shift gears back to the issue of the day. It's still the issue of the day, COVID-19. The pandemic is obviously still raging. Steve, you had two pieces in our most recent weekly paper that I really enjoyed editing. 
first up, you spoke with J&J's top scientist, Paul Stoffels, on how J&J designed its COVID-19 vaccine for maximum impact. And then you had a piece talking about really what's to come, innovations forged in the COVID crucible and how it will reshape medicine. Segging onto that, nerd alert here, Simone did a deep, deep dive into the COVID R&D Alliance, speaking with Andy Plump. And who else did you speak with, Simone? Brett, Brett Holman from Theravance. Just open the floor up to you guys. What did you learn from these three leaders in the fight against COVID-19? Right. So it was interesting to speak with Andy and Brett. Andy is, as you said, president of R&D at Takeda. So I had a representative of a very large company, a very small company. They're both big players in the COVID R&D alliance, which we've been following since inception. It's one of the three big industry consortia. What is interesting is that despite the fact vaccines are now here and being rolled out, these industry players are not done yet. They still think there's a lot for them to do in 2021. I don't expect to see the team disbanding although they have become a lot more nimble and they're working via subgroups. I think a couple of the really big statements for me is that Andy Plump said that they have to continue working on this. This is not a one and done. It's clearly something that's going to happen again. And so this alliance's focus is on therapies. And I think that they will continue the master protocol trials that they've got and trying to advance therapies that could be used in a, a future pandemic. One other thing I want to mention that they both were really clear about is that it is no accident that the first two uh, vaccines approved were mRNAs. They think that is a proof of the methodology, the mechanism, and the science that's been put into that, and they expect to see a lot more on the mRNA front. Steve, how did your conversation with Paul Stoffels go? It it was really fascinating, and I think that it's something that we're going to be hearing a lot more about in the next couple of weeks, because J&J has completed enrollment in a phase three trial of its COVID-19 vaccine. Efficacy data should be available in a couple of weeks. Safety data before the end of the month. If it's safe and effective, this vaccine is going to have a tremendous impact. It was designed to have characteristics that set it apart from others. Most importantly, it's a single dose that avoids the complication and the controversies around getting a second dose to people that are happening now with the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines and with the AZ vaccine in the UK. It's stable at temperatures that are achievable in regular refrigerators. And Stoffel's told me that J&J is on track to produce a billion doses this year, and half of them are set aside for the developing world. That's truly excellent. Which groups are they partnering with to get vaccines to the developing world? Is it with Gavi or? Yeah, they've got an arrangement with Gavi and with the Gavi COVAX facility, Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that's being co-run by Gavi, the ACT Accelerator, and the World Health Organization. COVAX's goal is to be able to provide enough vaccine for every developing country to vaccinate 20% of its population. I think it's worth mentioning, Steve, also that Paul Stoffels really has a very rich history in terms of vaccine development and certainly global health. I think he was 
on the ground in Africa during that, the HIV that, crisis and so on. That's right. So yeah, Stoffels is the real deal. He started his career working on HIV in Africa. He has worked on every global emerging infectious disease crisis of our lifetime, I think. I've interviewed him about Ebola, about Zika, and J&J has also um, taken a role in working on pandemic flu preparation. So he is the real deal. And it's very interesting. One of the things that he talked about was how they took a little bit of extra time to design this vaccine so that it would have characteristics that would give it maximum impact. Those are the things that I mentioned before. Single dose is huge. Being stable in a refrigerator is also huge. When the data comes in, it's also likely that this one's going to have efficacy more quickly than some of the other vaccines. Lord knows we need it. Steve, I really enjoyed your commentary, as I said. What was sort of the key takeaway, would you say? My idea on the commentary is to look ahead a little bit. First, I set up a a metaphor. I said that the response to COVID-19, in many ways, the only thing you can compare it to is a war, um, the Second World War, or in some ways, um, the Cold War. And the reason for that is not just the global nature of it and the deaths and the devastation, but it's also the fact that the world is focusing tremendous scientific talent, industrial resources, and finance on attacking what's an existential threat. And uh, just like in the Second World War, that resulted both in, in tremendous new inventions and in the acceleration of things that would have taken much longer in the absence of that kind of focused attention. Atomic weapons and atomic power, the jet engine, radar, and the pharmaceutical industry itself, the modern pharmaceutical industry itself, all either happened or were dramatically accelerated as a result of the investments made in the Second World War. The same thing's happening with COVID-19. Simone's already mentioned mRNA vaccines. That's a technology that has been under development for years. And in the absence of the pandemic, it would still likely be years away from the first approval of an mRNA vaccine. And now we've got two of them that have been authorized. I think we're going to have more of them coming in the, uh, this year. The technology is going to branch out into other areas. Master protocols, remote clinical trial technologies. Th- these are examples of technologies and processes that were in place. We've been writing about them in BioCentury probably for a decade, but they've been moving ahead very, very slowly. And now the pandemic has propelled them. The response to the pandemic has propelled them to the forefront. I think this is going to be an inflection point in modern medicine. A lot of things are going to be different going forward as a result of the advances that have been made in the last 10 months, if we don't screw it up. The other thing that the pandemic has shown us is that making scientific and technical advances are necessary, but they're not sufficient. They have to be coupled with smart regulatory policy, with government investments, and competent government rollouts, public health responses. The disastrous vaccine rollouts that are happening now and the failure to exploit the monoclonal antibodies are two examples of how you can have tremendous scientific and technical advances that aren't coupled with appropriate public policies. The result is needless death and suffering. The two messages that I had from this piece were, one, there's this tremendous scientific and technical progress that's happened as a result of the pandemic response, and two, that it needs to be coupled with smart public policy so that we actually exploit these um, opportunities that have been created. 
And one little tidbit that I really enjoyed in your piece was you talked about a small company that no one had really heard of back in the day before World War II, Pfizer, and how they shifted gears to begin making penicillin. Look at where they are today. They are one of the major players leading the charge to develop countermeasures against COVID-19. Yeah, it it was really interesting. They were making citric acid. They were a small little company that that was obscure and they bet their future on their ability to mass produce insulin using fermentation technologies that hadn't yet been invented. There are about a dozen other American companies that made similar bets and uh, many of them succeeded. The result was tremendous for American war effort. When the soldiers landed on D-Day, the medics had penicillin in their backpacks. It really jump-started the development of so many important medicines after the war that were made possible as a result of the existence of antibiotics. Um, Many surgeries, for example, would be impossible if you didn't have antibiotics. And Pfizer's done it again. Maybe they didn't bet the company this time, but they certainly made tremendous at-risk investments in their COVID-19 vaccine. They didn't take any money from the U.S. government or from other governments, though their partner BioNTech did get some money from the European Union for their development work. But still, Pfizer made these tremendous investments, made huge at-risk bets, and it's paid off. It's paid off both for Pfizer, but more importantly for the world. One, one other example, there's a Canadian company, Abcelera, which was founded to come up with ways to discover antibodies quickly and to scale them up so that they could be used for things exactly like pandemic response. They received early backing from DARPA. They were like BioNTech, a company that probably nobody outside of the industry and many people in the industry had never heard of. The pandemic response has accelerated their development tremendously. They teamed up with Eli Lilly to manufacture a COVID-19 monoclonal antibody. They've gone public and they've got a market capitalization of over a billion dollars now. 10 billion, Steve. 10 billion. Okay, well. They started, I think when they listed, it was closer to a billion. They raised almost half or more than half a billion dollars in that IPO and their market cap got as high as $15 billion and good on them. Let's, Let's end there. Obviously a positive note. Thank you, Steve. It was getting a little gloomy there again. Um, Steven, Simone, thanks. Thanks for jumping on today and dropping some science on us. All of our podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Music for all of our podcasts is provided by Kendall Square Orchestra, which connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 